Welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate, the podcast that teaches you how to advance into retirement rather than retreating. I'm your host and valedictorian, Eric Brotman, and today is a very special episode because not only do we have two guests simultaneously, but we have two repeat guests simultaneously, backed by popular demand. I am joined by fellow BFG financial advisors, Lena Nebel and Zach Scott, and we're going to talk today about behavioral finance and the reasons why investors and consumers and just people in general do exactly the wrong thing sometimes at exactly the wrong time. So Lena and Zach, welcome to the show. Lena, you want to do a quick introduction for yourself? Sure. Um, thanks again for, for having me back. I'm looking forward to this topic. Um, I've been with BFG for a few years now. Um, I oversee the financial planning side and assist with you know mentorship and um, processes and deliverables and obviously um, work with a, a good amount of BFG clients as well. Terrific. And Zach? Great. I'm also very happy to be back. Thank you for, for the invite. Um, I'm a financial advisor as well, a CFP, and I work with about 55 families or so uh, with the firm. Um, and I also do collaborative work with our team as well. Terrific. So I want to dive right in to this, this theme. Um, behavioral finance is a, is a relatively recent um, uh, a relatively recent field of study. Um, it combines finance and economics with psychology. And that's something that sometimes w- we don't spend a lot of time thinking about. It, it feels sometimes like finance and finance education is very quantitative. Uh, and yet there's a human component to this. And so I- I'd like to start with sort of this backdrop of uh, the pendulum that tends to swing specifically for investors between two very, very strong emotions, one being fear and one being greed. And there are lots of examples where that has uh, where that has been an issue. And, and Zach and Lena are going to share some stories. We're all going to talk about some some stories today uh, that that hopefully will resonate with you as our listeners. Um, but one perfect example of that um, goes back into the late '90s, um, affectionately referred to as the tech bubble, um, but also right before Y2K when the millennium changed. And there was an enormous amount of, of greed at, at that time in the late 90s where everything.com, whatever it was, .com was providing these ridiculous returns. There were internet funds providing 100% returns in a given year at the time. And almost all the companies underlying in those funds had no earnings whatsoever. It was just this promise that was going to happen. You know, there were, there were companies that literally never turned a dollar's worth of profit that became worth a ton of money and then evaporated into the ether. So in the 90s, it was not uncommon for someone to call our office and say, hey, I'd like to work with you. I'm a little unhappy with my current financial advisor because we only got a 47% return last year. Um, Lena, you remember this. You were, you were doing this at the time. Zach, you, you, you don't remember this. You're a little younger than we are, but... Can you imagine a, 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 a consumer being upset about a 47% return? And the idea was, hey, my neighbors got 100%. And Money Magazine and all the, the various financial porn of the day was putting out these, these, uh, these covers that said, your neighbors are getting rich, why aren't you? And people piled in and then got steamrolled by it. Um, we had similar uh, similar experience in 2008 and 09 during the Great Recession where fear really took over where markets dropped, equity markets dropped almost 40% in six weeks. 
which is a horrifying experience and actually dwarfs the experience that we've had thus far in the COVID epidemic. But um, the, the fear piece of that was so profound because there were people who literally finally got to a point where they said, I can't take anymore, sell everything. And it was this panic sell-off that was really unhealthy. And of course, those people never really recovered. So let's talk about some examples where, where you've had this experience. And Zach, I'm, I'm going to go to you first. Give us an example where you've seen um, sort of this fear, greed pendulum or psychology take over where, where um, maybe a, a more analytical approach would have helped. Sure. Um, so I, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, people tend to do the exact wrong thing at the exact wrong time. And that's really where I think that uh, a financial advisor uh, really does the most of their work at that point because they they have the responsibility to try to help talk through the different strategies that have been implemented with the client to avoid those bad decisions. Um, and a lot of times that herd mentality after seeing on the news day after day, especially in this current situation, uh, you know, negative negative returns in the market and that, that line for the S&P 500 going in the downward direction, that's not a great feeling. And when you hear that all of these people must be selling it's instinctive in, in a lot of people to do the same thing. Um, but where where we come in as financial advisors is, again, to remind them, hey, we've put these strategies in place. We've segregated your different asset classes so that if there is a situation like we're currently experiencing, we're not forced to sell stocks at a low price. We've set aside bonds to provide income for you for the next several years. So we can wait out this downturn and not be forced to do something that might not be uh, advantageous. And Zach, if I'm not mistaken, there are situations where some clients, some investors will call the office weekly or even more than weekly during periods of bad news, uh, almost for um, a, a dose of reassurance. Have you, You've been on the receiving end of that, yes? Sure. There there have been, especially in the last couple of weeks, certain clients you sort of get familiar with and understand that they're having a hard time with the with the current situation. And you just have to remind them, hey, we, we were preparing for this. We didn't know how it was going to happen or when it was going to happen. But ultimately, we saw a very long bull run in the stock market, probably close to 10-year run. Um, and at the end of the day, we didn't ultimately predict that it would be a pandemic that would cause the situation. But um, we we have been structuring portfolios in a way to prepare for this, and ultimately we're here. And it certainly doesn't feel good from a, a statement perspective, but it's just important to remind clients: Hey, we we have been preparing for this. We saw this on the horizon, and and ultimately we are here. And uh, while it's not fun, we have to stay the course. And uh, ironically, some of the very same people who uh, who call and are concerned that the the bottom is falling out and that they're you know they're they're having this incredible fear they also have this bizarre feel of of almost fomo too there's there's almost that am i missing something have you have you seen that as well absolutely um coincidentally the same people even though they're concerned and and about the market and potentially want to sell or liquidate some of their holdings those very same people are also sometimes looking at this as an opportunity to potentially increase the the amount of risk that they have when that is just not necessary. And it's sort of 
the same conversation, reviewing those goals and objectives, reviewing the portfolio, discussing the strategies in more detail, and making sure that the clients understand that they don't necessarily need to take on additional risk at this time because we've already done all of the the work on the back end in preparation for the a situation like this it, it's fascinating the way people the way our minds work um lena let's let's shift to you because you, you do a lot of work with with corporate clients and with executives and a lot of times those folks have uh, enormous holdings in their company stock and that creates an interesting psychological and behavioral um, uh, conundrum as well. Can you talk about sort of how that impacts people, uh, you know, positively or negatively? Absolutely. You know, um, as you said, I, I do work with a lot of um, uh, upper management in, in the corporate sector. And whenever I'm sitting down with a prospective client and I see that they have a large weighting in their company stock, I start to ask them the questions of kind of how they're, they're tied to it, what their thoughts are, what their feelings are with it. And then we, of course, have the discussion about diversifying outside of the company stock for a whole host of reasons, um, not just the risk that they're exposing themselves to, but their, their job is tied to it, their income, their benefits, et cetera. And I have to agree with Zach that I think during these times, this is when we're providing the most value to clients. And so, um, you know, I, I think immediately of an example of um, years ago, back in the, the 2008 time period, um, quite a few clients working for this one particular company um, where over 50% of their portfolio was in this one stock. And at the end of 2007, they were convinced the stock was going to double, it was going to split. Um, these individuals were putting their whole retirement goals pinned to this one, to the one stock. That's how they were going to retire. That's how they were going to pay off their mortgage. Um, so, of course, we, we talked about diversifying out of that, beginning to reduce it in a, you know, obviously in a tax efficient manner. They had stock options. They had individual stock. They had employee stock purchase plans they were doing. So... 2008 rolled around and they took over a 50% decline in that stock. And of course, at that time, that's when they wanted to sell, when it officially hit rock bottom. Um, and, you know, that's where we're there as the advisor to, to help them through those um, psychological mistakes and decision making. And, you know, we obviously waited for the stock to, to rebound a little bit and then started to sell it off and, and to put it into something that, that wasn't as aggressive. And they remember that emotional roller coaster, roller coaster to this day that they went through. And at that, once that happened, that's when they looked to us and said, you know, whatever you think you want to do with the portfolio, let's do it. Because they realized that their emotions got in the way of their decision making. It's funny because the further away we get from those kinds of experiences, the less potent those lessons are. So, you know, I'm sure in 2010 or 2011, those were fresh in people's minds and the recency of it made it uh, feel very real. And fast forward to 2018 or 2019, and I bet those, um, those reactions had started to change just based on the fact that it had been so long that maybe it feels like, oh, this can't happen to me again, or this, the, you know, that, that was a one-time thing, or it wasn't all that painful. I mean, are you seeing some of the sort of, I, I think it's called recency bias for that reason. Are you seeing some of that? Do you think that wanes over time? Um, you know, I think it does. It, it's interesting. I've, you know, in going through the, the dot-com bubble and then the 2008 crisis and then what we're in right now, 
Um, you know, I always use the example of, you know, you remember if you, you broke your arm, but you don't remember the pain that you felt when you broke your arm. And so that's what happened back in 2008. The people that went through the dot-com bubble, they, they knew that they had lost money, but they don't remember the feelings that they had at that point in time. And then go forward to today, people remember what happened in 2008. They remember they'd lost money, but they don't remember the feelings that they had at that point in time. And so I think that's where we have to basically ground the clients and talk about um, you know rational decision-making and um, try to remove a lot of these biases out of the picture when when talking about putting together a, a sound investment strategy, which in our world always comes back to a financial plan. You know, that, that's always where we're going to start to then help somebody build the allocation as what Zach had mentioned before. It's funny, you, you use the analogy of the broken arm and this idea that you've forgotten the pain and, and sometimes forgetting that pain or what that feels like can be a negative thing. I, I think it can also be a positive thing because uh, people sometimes have a second child. So there, there are situations where, where, where you're like, I, I have forgotten what that felt like. And, I, you know, I say that as as merely a bystander, you would know certainly a whole lot better than I would. Um, but people do it again. So it must be something we forget uh, over time. Right, or, exactly. or, at least, or, or at least are willing to put ourselves through again. Um, so there, there's other types of situations where people, um, their behavior really is is. Um, is driven by factors that are not financial. I can think of, of one example where we had um, some, some folks approach us and ask for us to do a financial plan for them. And they had um, almost $100,000 of credit card debt. And the, you know, per, just personal spending, consumer debt, junk debt, the, the, the 16, 17, 18% type debt. Um, and these folks had a very significant income. They were just spending a lot of it in poor ways, and they were using their extra income to make excess payments toward their mortgage, which was at four and a half percent. And when when I asked what what the decision factor was there and why, it was well, at least we'll know our house is paid off, and that's our biggest loan. So we were able to take a step back, reconstru- reconstruct the debt changed the dialogue and actually wound up saving this family close to $5,000 a month, which, and this is going back uh, more than a decade, they are now very wealthy people because they, they got rid of that noose and they also learned how to channel that behavior. Um, it wasn't even overspending. It was just paying things off in a, in a peculiar way. So some of those things feel obvious to us unless we're in them. It's much easier to diagnose someone else's issue than to, to look into ourselves and do it, which is why even a, a financial advisor should have a financial advisor. And so for full disclosure, Zach is my financial advisor. And, and when my wife and I sit down with him, I take off my advisor hat and put on my, my, um, my husband hat and my family hat and uh, take his advice because it's hard to do it for yourself. So let's talk about some of the other biases that are out there. And this is a a growing field of study. There are dozens of these that have been identified. And, you know, later in the show, we'll talk about some resources if this is interesting to you and you want to read about them. But there's there's a couple that I'm thinking of that happen um, that are um, pervasive. Uh, One of them is referred to as anchoring. Um, and anchoring, Lena, you want to talk a little bit about um, about how that impacts people and their decision making? 
Sure. Um, so I, I deal with anchoring quite often just because of our, our clients who, as I, as I mentioned before, have a lot of company stock because what, what anchoring um, is centered around is that you, as an example, you're buying a stock at a certain share price and you don't or can't sell it below that price. You, you know, you, you bought it at $50 a share and it goes to 40 and there's no way that you want to sell it because it's below that $50. So you're, you're anchoring your decisions based off of that $50 a share. Um, and it doesn't mean that it's any less valuable or it's lower quality or higher quality based upon how the prices are moving. Um, but emotionally, clients are stuck to that price point. They've anchored themselves in. Um, the other day, I had a conversation with a client who has Exxon stock. And we've seen what Exxon has done um, you know, in the past two months. Um, she has this price point in her mind of what she should sell it for and can't emotionally sell it for less than that, even though it's obviously taken, taken a big hit. And so for some clients, um, it impacts their ability to diversify into less risky investments. Um, it, issue it impacts their liquidity needs so anchoring is a, is a big item that i primarily see on the on the individual stock side um but you can also see it in the real estate environment um we know that we all kind of have a, a price of what our house is valued at and if it appraises differently if somebody offers us less than that we don't want to take it so we um, go through many of dialogues with clients when they're selling their home and if they're getting an offer for less than what they think they should have, um, if they should still sell it because obviously there's the carrying costs and everything else. So we deal with anchoring biases uh, quite a bit in the office. The real estate example is a great one because I, it, it's one of those things where no matter who you ask, um, everyone will say, my house, you know, based on recent comps in the neighborhood, but my house is nicer or it's been appointed better or it has a better deck or a better yard or mine should go for more than that. You know, it's kind of like asking everyone in a room who's a better than average driver and 95% of the hands go up um, because 5% of people aren't paying attention. No one thinks they're a below average driver and yet 50% of people are. Um, I, I can attest that Zach is one of those people. All right. So uh, let's talk about another, let's talk about another type of behavioral bias, which is uh, loss aversion. Uh, th this this idea that um, that a, a loss has a, a profound or a more profound impact on someone than maybe a gain. Zach, can you talk about loss aversion and and maybe how that impacts people and, and sort of what it is? Sure. Um, and uh, just to go over loss aversion uh, a little bit more detail, the pain from loss, the pain from losing something is about twice as powerful as the pleasure from gaining that same item. So for example, um, if you're walking down the street to the store to pick up a carton of ice cream and you find a $5 bill on the ground and you pick it up, you're gonna feel pretty good. Um, but if you do that same walk to the same store to pick up the same ice cream and you get to the checkout counter and you open up your wallet and you realize that the $5 that you thought was in there isn't in there, that pain is going to be far more than if you were to find the $5 on the ground unexpectedly. Um, to sort of relate this from a portfolio perspective, and, and this is a, a, a pretty powerful example, um, if you have a $100,000 portfolio and you were to experience a 50% loss, your portfolio would then be reduced to $50,000. But to get back to where you were, you don't need a 50% gain. You actually need a 100% gain. 
Um, so just that idea that uh, losing what you already have is so powerful um, with with regards to psychology in the human brain that uh, it is something that everyone wants to avoid. Uh, I think I think all of us can agree that recently, especially with the decrease in stock prices, um, we've gotten a lot more phone calls lately from clients just asking, hey, are we doing anything as a result of this? Uh, but it's very rare to receive a phone call from a client uh, when markets are going straight up and portfolios are having incredible returns. You, that, that is a rare phone call to receive from a client and to, uh, to thank you for that on a particular day. Um, so clients in general and people in general are very uh, are much more focused on the possibility of loss and gains sometimes are sort of expected. So it's 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 an interesting dynamic uh, to have with clients from the advisor perspective. Your example is a great one. Both the $5 bill example and the portfolio example. Um, you know, sometimes we rely on things like averages and the math might be right, but the math also lies to us. You know, that same example with the $100,000 portfolio, if you lose 50% one year and you gain 50% the next year, that manager is going to say we averaged 0%, which is entirely true mathematically, except you don't have the same amount of money you started with. You have significantly less. In that case, $25,000 less, despite the average. It's kind of like saying the Titanic's voyage, 99% of that voyage went great. Um, that, that's not necessarily the way you want to look at math, right? So let's talk about another one of these uh, biases, and, and I'll, I'll tackle this one, and it's mental accounting. And it's sort of the way we think about um, the way we think about numbers and the way we think about money. And I'm going to use an example that's going to feel like a third rail for financial advisors, but I'm going to use an example from a casino which is not to suggest we're advocating gambling naturally, but, but for people who do that and enjoy it and are healthy about it, um, when you gamble, let's, let's say, Zach, you're at the blackjack table and you have $100 and you're going you're gonna to play blackjack for a while and it's a good time, you're having fun with friends, and you turn that $100 into $200. There's a tendency for people to think about that $200 as $100 of my money and $100 of house money. That's someone else's, it doesn't belong to me. And so as a result of that mental accounting, instead of the fact that, yes, you could go to the cage, cash in the $200 and go get a stake, instead, we tend to get more aggressive with that money that we consider not ours. We don't treat it with the same gravitas that we treat our own funds. So that's house money and we, we get more aggressive with it. By the same token, if you start with that $100 and you lose it, which goes back to your loss aversion of the pain of losing $100 is a whole lot greater than the pleasure of winning $100. But you lose that $100, there's a tendency to say, I I've lost money, I've got to get it back. And that's when you reach into your wallet and you pull out another $100 bill because you're going to get your money back. And that's where people get in real trouble. And it's because of that loss aversion and it's because of that mental accounting that people tend to, to feel like they have to play catch up, which is why gambling is such a dangerous thing. It's why casinos have, have fountains in their lobbies because people walk in there and they just make horrible mistakes, um, not just from a gaming perspective, but from an accounting perspective. So, well, we're at the point in our show and, and we could talk about a hundred of these, but we're at the point in our show where we need to start thinking about our extra credit assignments. Um, because uh, for all of us, um, for all of us, we can take one takeaway from a from a show like this and hopefully change our lives with it. Um, and since there's three of us, this is a bonus. There are going to be three extra credit assignments. So, Zach, what would your one takeaway be, or your one piece of advice for folks who just shared half an hour with us? 
Sure. So mine, uh, my extra credit assignment goes to those who are still continuing to uh, put money away and have the means to do so. Look at this situation as as an opportunity. Um, there is a lot of fear out there right now, but for those who have a longer time horizon, this really is an opportunistic situation to put money away uh, in potentially places that, it, in, it, like Roth IRAs, that will never be taxed again. So that that would be my extra credit assignment. I think that's sound sound and sage advice. Although let me let me ask you one question. I'm going to put you on the spot, Zach. Sure. Um, would you say would you say that it is better for someone who is doing that to continue to dollar cost average and to continue to contribute every paycheck or every month, or better to say, hey, I've got this money on the sidelines. I'm going to dump it into something now because it's an opportunity. Dollar cost averaging, absolutely. Um, I'm always in favor of spreading out purchases over time, trying to avoid any sort of luck, good or bad. Um, Like I was saying earlier, continue the course, remember the strategies that you've implemented all along, and don't let uh, the noise in the media and in the market impact the decisions that you're making if you continue to have the resources to do so. Sage advice. Lena, extra credit assignment. Sure. So, um, you know, the last time I was on your podcast, my topic was how to find a financial advisor, how to interview, what are the right questions. So I'm going to piggyback off of that topic and say, if you don't work with a financial advisor, I would encourage you to find an advisor, find a coach, somebody that you can be accountable to, somebody that um, can serve as your sounding board to help you overcome some of the behavior. Um, if you currently work with an advisor and you don't feel like they're, um, you know, listening to some of these uh, decisions that you're making and that, you know, your these psychological mistakes continue to happen, um, maybe it's time to find another advisor too. So, um, you know, especially for the individuals who may be kind of the, the do-it-yourself investors and, and have could be doing a great job. Um, it never hurts to kind of get a, a second opinion and, and to have a sounding board. Um, just like if you're going to the gym and you hire a trainer for, for a few months to try to get a better edge, have them help you with techniques and postures. Um, same thing with the financial advisor as well can help you overcome uh, some of these behaviors as well as most importantly, being a sounding board and being a coach for you. That's great advice. And, and actually, like I said earlier today, um, even advisors should have advisors because it is very, very tough to do this yourself and to not get um, um, emotionally charged by some of the decision making. So it's my turn to give an extra credit assignment. And my extra credit assignment um, is going to feel like a heavier lift because I'm going to recommend a book. Um, that talks about behavioral finance in a way that is, number one, a very interesting and entertaining read, and number two, incredibly insightful. Uh, And the book is called The Behavioral Investor. It's by Daniel Crosby, uh, a PhD who I believe is the brightest mind uh, in behavioral finance space. Uh, He's written a number of books, um, which I have read and which I I think are, are great to share. They are not so technical that they feel like textbooks. They won't put you to sleep. They're actually really fascinating and and tell stories and give examples of how we all make mistakes and why we make them and sometimes why we make them over and over again. Um, It's funny how we're wired as human beings. So The Behavioral Investor by Daniel Crosby. So um, with that, Lena and Zach, I thank you for appearing on the podcast a second time. Um, We may even have you back a third time. This was very helpful. Thanks for being here today. Thank you, Eric. It was good to be here with you too, as well, Zach. Thank you so much. It was great. 
So for all our listeners, please subscribe to our podcast, post comments and reviews, and consider sending us a question, which we might answer in a future episode of Office Hours. For more, go to DontRetireGraduate.com. To learn more about BFG Financial Advisors, visit us on social media or at BFGFA.com. We'll be back next week with another installment of Office Hours and in two weeks with another engaging guest or maybe two. For now, this is your host, Eric Brotman, reminding you, don't retire, graduate. From this day forward, let us begin visualizing our dreams and building our futures. Today, I implore you, don't retire, graduate. Visit our website at don'tretiregraduate.com to subscribe. And please like us and post comments on social media. Securities offered through Kestra Investment Services, LLC. Kestra IS, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Kestra Advisory Services, LLC. Kestra AS, an affiliate of Kestra IS. Kestra IS or Kestra AS are not affiliated with Brotman Financial or any other entity discussed. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert, Warren Buffett, once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.